I never got bored, never. And it might've been, it wasn't just about shoes. It was about um, women's sports. It was about an individual athlete. It was about a new way of training. You know, it was always something different. Hi. Hi. So good to see you guys. Yeah. You look great. Thanks. We were just saying yeah. nobody looks good on a Zoom call. <laughs> well, thank you guys. Really appreciate you guys making the time. Um, so I just, this is obviously a different format. We've done one couple interview with uh, Megan and Chris. Um, so you guys aren't the trailblazers like those guys are, but hopefully we've kind of figured out that format um, to make it easier on you. I'm going to pick on you, Pat, to, to kick us off. Um, you know, a, a, an Oregonian through and through. Um, if you could tell us about your, uh, your Oregon story and your origin story, um, I would love to start there. Well, if you guys are okay, I wanted to kind of skip sequence. Uh, first, I want to say thank you guys for doing this because it's just good to talk to you. And two, um, for me at least, uh, this was a, an excuse to kind of go down Nike memory lane because, you know, so often you're worried about what are you going to do today? What do you have to do this week? What do you have to do this month? And you keep looking forward. And uh, I think I speak for both of us. We don't look back very much, but it was fun just thinking about this conversation, thinking about the context in which we both joined the company because coincidentally, just randomly worked out that way. We both got hired within two weeks of each other in late 1988. And um, it was such an interesting time for the company because Nike was not a sure thing in late 1988. I mean, believe it or not, Reebok was number one at that time. And Reebok had really kind of hit the wave, caught the wave of uh, women's white, aerobic shoes. So, and depending on who you talk to in regards to Adidas, you could have said Nike was number three to both Reebok and Adidas. So we both joined the company at that time when it was not written in stone that Nike was going to become what Nike became. Um, and I know you want me to talk about college, et cetera, but I just wanted to set the context of when we joined the company and the analogy I've used, and maybe some other people have used it on your podcast too, it's kind of like at that time, Nike was this rocket ship on the launching pad. And the countdown happened, you know, five, four, three, two, one, the rocket ship blasted off. There was no guarantee the rocket ship was going to, you know, it could have crashed and burned right there on the, on the launch. Um, <laughs> but it didn't. The other option was it could shoot into space and never look back. So fortunately for Nike, fortunately for us, that rocket shot into space and um, and we were along for the ride. So um, again, it was such a key year, 1988. We both started there about the same time. And um, I, I had an old TV boss say that timing is everything. And at the time I thought, ah, yeah, what timing? Who cares about timing? Our timing was extraordinary. So that's kind of my intro again, because this is what I was thinking about today, getting ready to talk to you two guys. That's great. Yeah. 
No, we've def we've we've kind of touched on that. Those there's those kind of I don't want to even call them low points, but points where you know the company was kind of hanging on by a thread, and whether it was signing Michael Jordan or the release of you know the Air Max shoe, like these kind of fundamental things that really changed the course of the company at that time. Um, and you guys were kind of at the forefront of that. Um, were you guys were trepidatious about that? opportunity at that time um just based on with a landscape or the vibe within the company or you got the, the enthusiasm for what could be was pretty palpable can i tell one more story okay but i'm gonna follow your format because i like your format i'm gonna go back <laughs> to where we came from and how we ended up we feel like we're already something Mikey, without giving any context and i like that you the context with your other people. My bad. Well, you know, well, this is what we love about our podcast is because there's it's it's authentic. We there's no you know right or wrong answer. It's just kind of we go with the flow. So we love it. So I'm just not ready to talk about the time at Nike yet until I give you some context. Oh, perfect, perfect. Okay, yeah, I appreciate that. You started Okay, forcing. all right, all right. So you're right, Jesse, Oregonian, true and true, true and true. Um, I, this dates me, but I used to go down to Autzen Stadium and watch Dan Fouts mm. when he played for the Ducks. I, in high school, would watch Ahmad Rashad when he was Bobby Moore playing for the Ducks. Um, those days, you could drive right up to the stadium because there was about 12,000 people in the stands. And we'd go to the games, drive right up, walk in, watch Dan Fouts, watch uh, Bobby Moore and that kind of thing. Uh, I'm so old. I went to a frat party when I was in high school at University of Oregon. And who was there but Steve Prefontaine drinking a lot of beer. So that was quite a while ago. So yeah, I was an Oregonian through and through. Um, was I made, was I destined to be with Nike? I don't know about that, but I was always a sports guy. Um, went to journalism school at Oregon, uh, got into radio news then television news. And from television news, well, I worked with another Nike, legendary Nike person, Mark Pilkington, at TV News in Eugene. Mark Pilkington came up to Portland to work for this thing called Nike Sports Productions. We had no idea what Nike Sports Productions was. Uh, this was 1979. Barely knew what Nike was at that time. But I eventually made it up to Portland working in television. And when, when my ex-wife kicked me out of my ex-house, I needed a place to stay. Uh, so I moved in with Pilk and he was working for Nike Sports Productions, which became Nike Film and Video. And uh, he described his job. He was traveling around the world, shooting sporting events. And it sounded like the best gig in the world. I was still doing local TV sports on Channel 6, KOIM. And, but I thought, man, if that job ever shot, opened up, I'm all over it. Pilk moved to another, another job within the company. I, by that time, had met the legendary Michael Doherty and told him, I'm really interested in this job. And he said, well, what do you know about production? I said, well, not much, but I had access to KOIN's video vault. This is before the days of YouTube when you just grab anything off of the internet. So I had access to all these great sports highlights on video. And Doherty says, 
if you can bring all those sports highlights to Nike, you've got the job. So it certainly wasn't what I knew. It was who I knew and what I could feel. So that's how I got the job in Nike film and video. And, you know, there I was uh, for 20 years. Wow. Wow. Oh, all right. So we're, we've got yet at, at Nike now, Pat. So Nancy, let's, let's go over to you and, and have you take us on your journey. Okay. So I, um, I grew up in Japan. My parents both born and raised in Hawaii. And um, after the war, my father ended up going to Japan and lived in Hiroshima for a couple of years and then sent for my mother and three older sisters um, to come over. And then I was born couple years after that. So he was um, working for the Department of Defense. So usually through um, the army. So we lived in Hiroshima. And then we moved up to Tokyo, lived in Tokyo for a couple of years, and then moved to a couple different bases. So Tokorozawa and uh, Sagamihara. Um, so I grew up going to um, living off and on a base and then going to American schools there. So when it was time for me to um, go to college, I'd never lived in the States. I'd been to, I'd been to the States, been to Hawaii a number of times, but hadn't been to the lower 48 um, for, I think maybe my sixth grade. It was the first time I came. Um, so when it was time for me to leave home, um, I had two sisters living in Portland at the time. So I applied and sent my resume or transcripts to two different schools, University of Portland and Portland State, thinking it was the same school. Luckily, University of Portland accepted me. <laughs> and um, so I, I came here and went to school here for four years. Um, my first, I remember the first, when I got my first list of classes, they had me in this class called ESL. And I thought, what is ESL? Um, so I go to the class and then I discover that it's English as a second language, which of I grew up speaking English. I don't even speak Japanese. I'm terrible. I mean, I speak a little bit French in high school, um, but I'm not conversational at all. Um, so it was very interesting because they just assumed because it came, I came from Japan that I was Japanese, which I um, wasn't. Anyway, um, so when I got to UP, I had um, acted a lot in high school. And so I just assumed I'd be um, a drama major. Um, but after a couple of years, I realized that might not be the best um, opportunity for me, long-term opportunity. So took a couple communications classes, took one advertising class, one marketing class, and graduated with a, a degree in communications, but thinking that I would um, get into broadcast journalism. So I interned at a radio station here, KGW AM Radio. You guys are probably way too young to even know AM Radio, but... <laughs> Um, it was super hot at the time yeah. and I was in radio news. So did my internship there and then, um, worked at the front desk on the weekends, taking all the phone calls and having to transcribe all the complaints that came in on the, on the line, people mad that programming had changed. Um, so after graduation, I ended up moving up to Seattle and, um, worked at King broadcasting up there for a while. Um, FM station as well, and then thought AM station there, and then thought, you know what, what I really want to do is production. And I you know, had seen a lot of ad production. I thought I would love to do that in an ad agency. And there was one agency 
in Seattle, Colin Weber, that had a, a pretty good production department. So a friend of mine just said, you know, just get your foot in the door. So whatever you can do, get your foot in the door and um, then start working your way around the agency. So I ended up getting a job in their research department as the admin. Unfortunately, during those times, most women started in administrative positions. I was an excellent admin. Um, so in, in research, I worked a lot with the account services group because they would come and they'd need information on brands or consumers and that. And I got to know what the account services, the account managers did and thought, huh, actually maybe that's what I want to do because they touch every part of the agency. They work with production, with media, and they're the main contact with the client. So long story short, um, got into account services, um, worked at Cole and Weber for another couple of years, then went to another agency, Elgin Seifert, um, you know, working on like bread accounts, U.S. Bank, uh, Sun Valley Ketchum Chamber of Commerce, you know, um, a lot of consumer brands, but always with the thought that I would move to New York. So I'd either go to New York or Chicago or San Francisco that at that time was sort of the hotbed of, of advertising, right? Um, and I remember I got a call from a friend of mine and he said, hey, I was talking to Scott Bedberry. He's working at this brand Nike in Portland. I said, oh yeah. And I knew Scott because we had overlapped at Colin Weber. So I didn't know him really well, but I knew of him. And he said, yeah, he's, they're looking for some ad managers and I gave them your name. Would you ever be interested in, in going there? And I was thinking, go back to Portland. I don't know. I'm going to New York. I mean, come on. I'm an ad guy. So at about that time, I remember I was at home and it was after work and I was probably drinking a beer, reading the paper and watching TV. And all of a sudden this commercial comes on and this woman says, she starts talking about it's running, it's training, it's um, basketball, it's walking. Um, you just have to do it. Just do it. Just do it. And then it cuts to her and she goes, just do it, looking straight to camera. And then the Nike logo comes up. I'm like, oh, that's kind of interesting. And then it cuts back to her and she goes, and it wouldn't hurt to stop eating like a pig either. And I was, whoa, okay. <laughs> that brand has attitude. I mean, they're, I don't even know if they showed a shoe. They might've shown a shoe in the commercial, but for the most part, um, it was all about just getting out and just doing it. And then she definitely spoke to me when she said, and it wouldn't hurt like to get off your ass and go out and do something rather than, you know, being at home, drinking beer, watching TV. So I said, sure, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll reach out or have, have Scott call me. So he did, they flew me down, interviewed, and it was so different than the interviews I then ended up conducting later in my years because they really were just selling me on coming to work, coming to work at Nike. So everybody was just telling me how great it was. Um, but I was hired not to work on the Nike brand, but to work on three new sub brands that they were going to launch and they had launched two of them. And at the time, I think Nike had just bought Cole Haan. And when they were looking at growing the company, they looked at growth along the footwear spectrum. So they had sport with the Nike brand, and then they had fashion with Cole Haan, and they were trying to fill in the blanks there. Um, LA Gear at the time was a teen girl brand that was just killing it with teen girls. Nike was not doing well with teen girls. Um, Reebok, you know, was 
killing it with their high top. Um, why can I cannot think of it. The aerobic shoes. The freestyle. Yeah. Yeah, freestyle. Mm -hmm. um, and so they thought, well, maybe what we need to do is just come up with a different brand um, that is not the Nike brand talking to women because we don't want to hurt our men's franchise, right? So um, the brands I worked on were IE, which was a sort of hybrid sport casual shoe between a Cole Haan and a Nike. So with Nike outsoles, but um, Cole Haan type uppers. Um, side one, which was targeting young girls. And then we were going to launch a men's brand called Relay. So I started as the ad manager on Sport Casual when I first joined. Wow. There's a lot in those um, sub brands that we should talk about too, but we'll, maybe we'll come back to that. Um, so Pat, so you, you've gotten in the door, you brought the tapes over for Doherty, you handed over <laughs> the highlights. It's true. <laughs> Go back to the story, because it's true. Yeah. So Even the people I was competing against actually knew what they were doing, but they didn't have access to Channel 6 and CBS's the sports archives. Well, it worked out perfectly for me the way it did, so I'm happy that that's how it, how it came down. Exactly. Um, so obviously Nike sports productions could mean a lot of things. You talked about how it evolved to film and video. When you started the company, what was your main task in, in leading that team? Well, I, I wasn't leading the team. Michael was at the time. Uh, I was just a producer, a video producer. Um, can I take one more little trip down memory lane? Yeah. What it was like? <laughs> that. Okay. Bad, Pat. When, when we were there, again, October, November, we were all told, and all meaning all Nike employees, told, you have to get to the Westgate Theater in Beaverton for an all-employee meeting. Now, the Westgate Theater doesn't exist anymore. I think it's like uh, condominiums or apartments. It's been torn down. But this just tells you, again, 1988, we could get the entire employee the whole staff into a theater at a cineplex so we all gathered in the westgate theater wait i'm going to stop him because before you go to tell what it is <laughs> me i am it, this is my day one and i'm wow. in the office at nimbus and scott comes in and he says hey are you going to the all-employee meeting and i said uh i don't know anything about it and he goes oh okay well it's at this westgate theater um, so you just follow me because we were at Nimbus, which is near Washington Square. So we had to come back to Cedar, Cedar Hills, right? So I said, yeah. okay, great. So I follow him, you know, again, brand new to, to Portland as well. Um, we park and it's a movie theater. Like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so we walk into the movie theater and I'll just give my thing. I walk in and it's packed with people. So there may be a couple seats left up front. So I go and sit down. But it was the entire employee staff. Yeah. <laughs> it was that, everybody. Who, who I've not seen because I'm literally just day one, three o'clock, right? So what are you? Well, the reason we were there is uh, primarily because um, somebody had kind of spilled the beans to Wall Street and given out some proprietary financial information. So Phil gets on stage and says, Shut up about that. Uh, this is, you know, loose lips sink ships. It was about futures, 
which became a really big deal for Nike, the futures concept. It had affected the stock price. The stock went down because of this information that somebody blabbed about. So he said, shut up, get back to your uh, cube or whatever it might be and just work your ass off. And that was, I think a couple of points from that was, the company was small then. Um, and we all kind of knew each other after a while. And we all kind of respected each other. It was like we were all on this, uh, you know, sports team. There were so many of us were former athletes. And so we were super competitive. And I think most of us didn't like the idea that we were number two or number three. So we had to figure out how do we get to be number one? And one thing we learned, I think you'll agree with me, dear, over the course of our long careers at Nike is Nike has always been at its best when it's got a target or an enemy or somebody it wants to beat. And we definitely had some targets and enemies back in those days. So as time went on, you, you got to enjoy working with these people. Again, we shared this common bond. We wanted this company to go somewhere. And it was sports and fitness. I mean, it's the best subject matter in the world. So you asked earlier, Jesse, was there some kind of trepidation when we started there? And really, Nike was not a sure thing. I think we saw the potential. And again, it didn't take long for at least me to really start to enjoy working with these people. And we all had this common cause. Now, of course, no co company that is successful stays small long. And Nike grew and it got bigger and it got corporate. And, you know, the elbows got a little sharper in, in meetings. Um, that's inevitable. But those days when we first joined there, it was exceptional. And, and um, uh, I don't know if you could duplicate it. It was just an amazing atmosphere. But I want to give some context to that because small company was, you'll have to double check my numbers, but in 800 or 900 million in sales mm. is what the company was at at the time. Yeah. So since I've been working with some startups right now, that's pretty good. Now within the, you know, sports and fitness, not being number one was a little bit of a thorn in the side, but um, the, I'm, I'm going to go back to the, that day in the, um, in the theater. Just Do It had, was just launched. So right. Just Do It was launched in um, the summer of that year. So this is November, right? And um, people are just, Just Do It is starting to really make waves here in the U.S. Um, people are talking about it. The commercials are getting a lot of attention. And you could just feel that energy in that room because everybody was just all hyped up about it. And there was a guy who was head of sales. Nick named, Cartalis. Yeah, Nick Cartalis. Yeah. And he was essentially the head cheerleader at the front. And yep. this, again, is just shocking to me, having worked on bank accounts. And you would not see something like this. But yeah. he literally goes, hey, everybody, we're here. We're going to kick some ass. We're going to what? Just do it. I can't hear you. Okay, now let's everybody say it. You guys are just. This section is due. <laughs> this section is it. Okay, let's go. Just do it. Like People are just... They've drunk the Kool-Aid yeah. in a big way. So as, you know, the first day there, this was like, whoa, okay. These guys are all in. Yeah. They're all in. That's definitely yeah. yeah, yeah. So the, it was just, it was kind of electrifying, you know? 
to have all these people, um, you could tell just all rallied around this, this brand. Um, but also because it's sport, it's like, you know, you don't win silver, you lose gold. We need to get to gold. And every, you know, everyone was focused in, in that direction. Yeah, it was exciting. Yeah. It was, it was fun to come to work. <laughs> you can't say that about every job. That's yeah. I couldn't wait to come to work every day. Oh, man. Um, when you guys first started in that year, um, when you guys came into Nike, what was like the culture like a little bit when you guys talked about, you know, everybody was all hands on deck. Everybody was excited. It was a kind of like an entrepreneurial mindset. Um, and as the company grew, obviously it changed a little bit, but was it more, were you guys able to take more risk from, from a lot of other aspects? Like, you know, take risk on the product, take risk on marketing, take risk on the messaging, the context. I mean, what was that like in the earlier days? You know, I have to say, because we were um, very siloed, right? So there was not the integration that happens now in a process, an organized process way. It was more your friends sort of thing, if that makes sense. So um, there was really, marketing was product marketing. Um, brand marketing was advertising sports marketing, public relations. I don't think we had retail. <laughs> there was no retail no, marketing, retail brand at the time. No. But for the most part, you know, it was, it was advertising and public relations that really drove the marketing for, for the company. And so to your question, John, you know, was it, did you take more risks in that? You know, there wasn't a concept map. Um, we knew that there was a new product coming out. There was going to be a new Jordan or a new running shoe or whatever it was. They would come to advertising to say, this is the product. Come up with how you're going to communicate about it. Mm. So it wasn't filling out the concept map. And we are going to be a roar for the run for the hills. It's going to be the seasonal thing. That That didn't happen. It was literally... This is a product we need to we need we need to promote it. Um, I will say when we hired, I think it was Joe McCarthy. So this is after Bedbury left. McCarthy came in as ad director, and I remember he pulled us all together in advertising. And he said, um, "Yeah, can you guys show me some of your your product ads?" So you know we'd show him a Jordan ad or you know whatever whatever was, you know, we were running at the time. And he goes, well, no, where, where are the product ads? That is, those are the product ads. But he goes, I don't see any product in it. Yes, did you see where it cut to the shoe? Yeah, that half second, second shot. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, it's not a product ad. You know, you come from, I don't, I, Joe had worked in agencies as well, but had worked with Procter & Gamble brands as well. And it just, it was just such a different way of working. You know, whereas what I loved about the Nike way from, you know, an advertising point of view, it was the most important thing was to make that emotional connection. And the product was always so beautiful. It, of course, was going to stand out. And um, you typically had, you know, an amazing athlete associated with that product. And so it was, you know, cha-cha-ching. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. A couple of things come to mind with your question. This was kind of the time when Liz Dolan came out with her famous quote, or at least the quote that's attributed to her, we make shoes we make apparel, and we make the rest of it up. And that, I think, was really symbolic of the 
what are we going to come up with to talk about this product or this athlete? You know, we, it was fly by the seat of your pants time. Um, like Nancy said, there weren't any roadmaps necessarily and, and prescribed routes. It was, hey, I got an idea. And there was also a feeling at that time that there were no bad ideas at Nike and anybody any part of the bureaucracy, whether it's an executive vice president or it's somebody who's a producer in film and video, anybody could come up with a good idea. And the company was so small and people were so willing to listen at that time, that idea could bubble up to the top and land and, and make a difference. So again, we've been gone a long time. We don't know what it's like there now. Maybe it's the same way now. I don't know. But uh, maybe not. Uh, it certainly was that time there where you got this feeling, speaking of culture, you really got this feeling, whether it was true or not, that everybody could make a difference. Um, and I've never been with a in a corporate or a company situation like that ever before or since. So I feel like I have to qualify Liz's quote because we just talked about it. I'm working with her on a, on a project right now and somebody asked her about it. And she said, well, actually... I said it at a sales meeting, but the sales meeting was the opening was um, all Saturday Night Live skits. And so she was playing the Rose Rosanna Dana character. She was on the weekend update yeah. desk. A long and, time ago. Yeah, was being interviewed. I think Chris Van Dyke, because we just saw Chris the other weekend, yeah. and Chris Van Dyke interviewed her and like, how do you do it? How does the magic happen? And that's when she said, we make shoes, we make apparel, and we make the rest of it up. And so, but people attribute that, like she said it in a big press conference, yeah. you know, to press. But it seemed very yeah, appropriate. appropriate at the time. Yeah, because yeah, you never knew what was going to happen next. And I, I don't, it's, it wasn't complete seat of your pants because obviously there was a product, um, there was a product calendar, right? In order to get product made, you needed to... Um, be well in advance of a season, right? You wouldn't just make it up. Um, but from a marketing, marketing the product point of view, um, it wasn't as organized and, and process oriented as it is now because it was a much smaller company. You know, it's very different than, than it is now. So. And one more thing I want to add to it. This was the time when Wyden and Kennedy was really hitting their stride too. And, you know, they were coming out with one, amazing cutting edge commercial after another. And me being in film and video, we would be get exposed to that pretty early because we would take those commercials and integrate them into live presentations that were a big, big deal back in the day. So I know that we couldn't and everybody couldn't wait to see how Wyden had pushed the envelope with this next commercial. So there was that anticipation of what are they going to come up with next that really contributed to the culture that we talked about a few moments ago. Yeah. I just want to touch base on that um, Nike Night Live <clears throat> um, series of meetings because it's most famous for the a scene where they had the village people and uh, Phil oh, was dressed in head-to-toe leather and Mark and that was one of those things. I think later it was like, "Don't let this get outside the company because we, we don't want we don't want Phil doesn't want that to get out there." So that's for all, that's only for the insiders. And it was that's true, Justin. You'll know all that because you 
you've seen all those tapes, right? Seen tapes even. Um, but it was it was at the um, oh shoot, what is that called? The center. Expo center. The, it was at the expo center. Yeah. I remember Rob DeFlorio. It's Rob the ad director at the time. I'm trying to remember. Um, we were both late, and but late actually worked to our benefit because when we came in, they still had seats up in the front, so we got to sit like in the second row and just I completely every single time at those sales meetings, you would just be blown away. My first sales meeting that November that I started was actually at a theater at Portland state. Portland state yeah. um, and I was used to, I'd worked on Hall America line West tours. So a cruise line. So I was on the agency side and you go to their sales meetings and they'd have like a um, overhead projector and the, sales guy would put sheet of paper on the overhead projector and say, uh, for the sailing August 25th, we have 300 births booked. We're looking for 50 more bookings. And then he'd get the next page. So that's what I was used to. And I go to this one and they have a gospel choir. Yeah, they have that. dancers. They have, I was just completely blown away. Like, Oh my God, what, what have I joined? This is just amazing. Like yeah. it would just <laughs> blow you away every single time. It was Michael Doherty. It was yeah, Michael Doherty. Really just the entertainment part, you know, entertaining, not just consumers, um, but entertaining employees was, was as important. It was, yeah. So I'm going to tell you guys one more story. And Jesse, this, thing, <laughs> this, this does not exist in the Nike film and video archives. So my my career at Nike could have come to a screeching halt just a few months into it. Um, here's the deal. <laughs> the next spring after we got hired in that fall uh, was appropriately enough, what's today, the final four. The final four was up in Seattle and it was my assignment as producer and photographer extraordinaire, Les Badden, we went up to Seattle to create a video on what Nike basketball marketing, how they would take over a city for the three or four days of a final four. So we went there to capture and document Nike's presence at retail in Seattle and everything that was going on connected to Nike basketball for the final four. So the final four was happening at the kingdom. This was a Saturday. So it was the day of the semifinals, the men's semifinals. We were there in the morning to document a presentation slash fashion show that was happening in a big hotel ballroom that morning. And there were like 300 people there and it was people of the press and people in the basketball industry and Nike was going to entertain them. So Les and I were at the back of the room and we were set up on a platform about two feet off the ground so that Les and his tripod and his camera could get line of sight and nobody would get in the way. A lot of Nike executives were also at the back of the room because they didn't want to take seats for the actual guests. So it was a morning gig and as a result, people were drinking coffee and there were all these Nike executives, including Phil Knight, at the back of the room and they were putting their coffee down on this platform where we had the tripod set up. So, halfway through, Les says, hey, Pat, can you get this piece of equipment? I need it right now. I don't want to stop shooting. Yeah, no problem, Les. So I grabbed the piece of equipment, and I think you can see what happened. 
accidentally knocked over coffee, like two cups, onto Phil Knight's white suit. Now, it, it wasn't... It wasn't like John Travolta's Saturday Night Live of a Stand Alive, Stand Alive kind of white suit, but it was a white suit. <laughs> I wondered why he was wearing a white suit to the Final Four, but it is what it was. So I didn't get fired on the spot. Um, and Knight didn't say anything to me. He just looked at me and if, you know, looks could kill, I would have been dead. And for that matter, I, I would have preferred to have been dead at that time because there he was white suit all over. I mean, it was a big spill and it was on the front of his suit. So I thought, okay, well, the only saving grace in this is that this was like 10 o'clock in the morning. The semifinals don't happen until the afternoon. He'll go back to his hotel room and he'll change. We go to the game. We're on the floor to shoot the game. I'm looking around. There he is in the front row, courtside, Phil Knight, same white suit with coffee stains on. Oh my god! So I thought it's not getting any better for me. It's been a great six months, and maybe I'll go back to TV news. You know, um, but word about that got out, and if it went back to the office in the ensuing weeks, people would say, "Hey, Slick, that was a good, real nice job. You know, spilling coffee all overnight at the Final Four. So I thought I had better go on the offensive on this. So I start to say to people, well, you know what? That's what he gets for wearing a white suit to the final four. <laughs> anyway, 19 and a half years later, I eventually left and I guess Phil forgave me or probably forgot who I was. <laughs> oh, man. Sorry, we got off track there. No, I think that it's interesting just the context of the work that you guys were both engaged in at the time where there was a lot of work that was done around sales. You know, there was the big like, you know, U.S. like the sporting goods shows and all those big shows where you were kind of putting those big presentations together, um, obviously advertising to kind of connect with the consumer. But there wasn't really, you know, a lot of work done at retail or hitting the consumer in different ways. So when did that kind of start to evolve? You know, you had talked about it being a very small company, but obviously the company grew and things started to kind of evolve and change in in different ways. And I'm assuming that would be in the 90s. Um, how did that sort of change? When did it change? And did you guys sort of see a palpable difference in the way that, you know, you guys were were working or the way that you were interacting with your other teams? Did it become less siloed? <clears throat> a couple things happened. One thing was when we first started, we were all spread out all of the Portland Beaverton area. And then of course the campus was built and that helped a lot to create synergy because you saw the same people and you didn't have to drive 20 minutes to go to a meeting. And about that time, you know, Gordon Thompson and others came up with, let's put on a show at retail. And that was when Nike started to make Nike towns, build Nike towns. And, and Gordon was the creative genius behind all that. Um, and John Hope. John Hope, yes, absolutely. Yes. Um, and of course that reached its pinnacle. There was, there was Nike town in Seattle and Nike town in San Francisco and Nike town in LA, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the company wanted to control its messaging at retail 
and they yeah. couldn't do it when it was working with Foot Locker or J.C. Penney's or Fred Meyer, whoever it might be. But when it was a Nike-only store, Nike could control every aspect of the communication to the consumer at that time. So that's Nike Town's uh, gained momentum, and they built more and more. And of course, the pinnacle was Nike Town New York, which was retail theater. And I would say where I saw the biggest change, um, so obviously IE Inside One and really never made it <laughs> to market, IE Inside One went away. And they went away because um, Foot Locker really liked a run-walk shoe that the team had made for Side One. And they said, we want that shoe, but we want it with a Nike swoosh on it, not this Side One. And I think that's when... You know, everyone realized building, starting a new brand is pretty expensive, right? But that brand with a Nike swoosh on it, or that shoe with a Nike swoosh on it would would be um, compelling enough for a young woman to, to want to buy into the brand. And so that's when the shift happened. When that happened, I then came back into advertising. I was downtown for a while, so sports casual was actually in the Pearl. So we were one of maybe two businesses at the Pearl at the time, they said, it's going to be the Soho of Portland. And I remember there was one coffee shop. There were a couple antique stores. And we're, we're in the same building where Keen is now. Yeah, so yeah. where Keen is right where now. Keen is now. Yeah, yeah, we were upstairs there. Um, and literally there was uh, one coffee shop across the street and then nothing else. There was a couple breweries as well, but it was... We, sh we should have bought real estate. Exactly. Yeah. Not very good. <laughs> But um, so when, when I then came back into the brand, I moved out to campus to um, Beaverton um, and started working in the, in the ad group. And I was given the women's categories. Um, and so I was lucky enough to come in after maybe two years of the, the empathy campaign that was just amazing and touched women, you know, so personally. Um, and really, I think not only had such a great connection. The brand had such a great connection with women because of that work that, um, that Janet Champ um, did from White and Kennedy, but it also influenced how other brands spoke to women, which was completely different and in a very you know, honest way. So I continued my career in advertising, working on a bunch of different campaigns and, and categories, went to Asia Pacific to be the ad director of Asia Pacific and then after a couple of years came back when Rob DeFlorio left the company, I came back to be the ad director for, for the US. And that was an amazing time because I had all the money. Um, and that's when, that was before everything was divided out. So, you know, Jesse, to your question, even though retail marketing was starting to become more important to us, we weren't necessarily integrated. So advertising still kind of, we were all talking about the same kind of the product, whatever it happened to be, you know, for a given season, but we were all doing it in different ways. So I think I was, maybe was I ad director for maybe two or three years. And just at the end of my time is when the company reorganized around categories. And that's when I think they did a lot of research and found that you know, two or three categories really um, led revenue for the company as a whole. And if you brought those teams together, we'd be even stronger and could tell even, you know, stronger stories. 
And it was about the same time that, you know, just signing an athlete, designing a really amazing shoe, and then buying a television, you know, campaign um, or television media was not enough anymore because the shift to digital media was happening. And the shift from brands being in control um, to consumers being in control and deciding when and how they were going to um, interact with your brand or interact with your media was really changing quickly. And so it was very smart that, that things were reorganized and we had real marketing teams um, with then functional um, groups that worked directly with them. But all of that, the budget that I had that was, and I say I had, that the ad group had, um, was then <laughs> divided into categories. And then the categories had the, the control and responsibility to figure out, okay, are we going to go, you know, um, heavy up on retail? Are we going to go all in on digital? Or how they then made the decision on how they would divide up that money. So it was very different. So Adam Roth, so funny because Adam followed me in a couple jobs. He, when I went to be the um, category lead for marketing for women's training, Adam took over the U.S. brand, U.S. ad director role. And then, oh shoot, where did I go after that? No, no, no. I went, that's right. I went to, I was over categories in the U.S. first. So from ad director to then over um, performance categories in the U.S. Then when I went from that position to uh, marketing lead for women's training, Adam then took that the role that I had with categories, and he left advertising, but then he didn't go into women's <laughs> after. <laughs> oh, that's where it stopped. But it was sort of a funny thing for a while where he was just sort of following behind what I was doing. Um, but anyway, that's where I think the the – a lot changed internally because it wasn't just one group having a say over the tone and the voice of the brand. It was a number of different groups and it wasn't just one um, function, you know, an advertising function. It was really thinking through that whole integrated marketing approach because consumers were touching the brand in so many different ways than they had before. I wanted to follow up just one, one note about, you know, your question, Jesse, and I might get the dates wrong, but it wasn't Tom Clark president about mid nineties around that time. So yeah. So Tom Clark was president and he had a phrase that he would repeat over and over again and he didn't make it up, but he, he lived by it religiously. And that phrase was product is king. And I never worked in product. You never really worked in product. So what are we, chopped liver? I mean, yeah, of course, you know, a Nike product is the best and it has built this legacy that it's always been the best, will always be the best. Uh, so sure, the consumer ultimately buys because of the product. Um, but I think the support of that product, the communication behind that product, the stories, the hype, all the things that we worked on, um, we tried to be king in our own way and our own contributions. Uh, but at the time I was, I was like, ah, Tom Clark, what does he know? Product is king. Looking back on it, <laughs> looking back on it. And I worked with a few companies after Nike and uh, in those companies also, I, I mean, I worked with Lexus and Toyota and Gatorade, Pepsi, and it, it does ultimately come down to product, but how a company supports that product 
through marketing, through intelligent storytelling, does make a big difference. And it was always product was king and obsessed product. Obsessive. Obsessed product, yeah, yeah, obsessive yeah, exactly. Was yeah. Always. And then the other thing we'll say that he said that I always thought was so smart, um, especially from an advertising point of view, is we're not in the sports business, we're in the entertainment business. Yeah. And that was just such a, a simple um, statement like that, I think it had such impact on us, on how we, um, you know, how we communicated with consumers and how we told stories that you really need to entertain. What was the aha moment that you knew that Nike was making a big impact? Jordan, what do you think? Yeah, I, well, when Nike had the vision to turn Michael Jordan into a global icon, you know, and of course create the shoes and the, and the, the footwear line around it, um, all those things came together because you had Jordan who was about to become the greatest basketball player, arguably of all time. You had Tinker Hatfield, who was designing footwear like nobody's ever seen before. Um, <laughs> reminds me of another stupid moment of my career. Um, Peter Rupi was working in basketball and, and we did some videos on the Jordan shoes and he gave me a pair of the Jordans. And I think they're like Jordan threes or Jordan fours. So, in my ultimate wisdom, I wore them for a little while, and then I started mowing the lawn with the Jordans. <laughs> you know, I could buy a house with those Jordans if I would have kept them in pristine condition. Uh, but anyway, um, to answer the question, I think Jordan. And then it was just this succession of hits. I mean, what Mike Wilski did with, with Bo Jackson, you know, um, Bo knows everything you know Bo Diddley um that was amazing work and again backed it up with great product those original bows were fantastic shoes um what you did dear with the women if you let me play um I mean it was just one hit after another so was there an aha moment I think Jordan was the catalyst and kind of the catapult that started it but then it was like the entire company was playing can you top this and the company did. You know, I remember when I um, when I was at the ad agency that I left before going to Nike. Um, and I'm going to tell you this, not to brag about a title. Oh, go ahead. But go. no, because it wasn't a bragging thing. It was a small agency in Seattle at the time called Elgin Seifert, and um, they had promoted me to vice president. But, you know, in an ad agency, a lot of people, vice presidents, not necessarily a big deal. But um, so they had, you know, they saw me as somebody that, you know, they wanted to help grow the the company. Um, and when I went in to resign to say I was, you know, leaving to get, take this job at Nike, I remember uh, my boss said, he goes, Nancy, you're going to go there um, and you'll have fun, you know. First year or so, you'll have fun. And then it's going to be year two. Oh, what do we need to talk about? Oh, yeah, shoes again. And then it's going to be year three. Oh, hmm, what are we going to do some ads around? Oh, that's right. We'll just do some shoes, some ads around shoes. Oh, wait, it's year four. She, he goes, you're not going to last. You're going to want to come back to advertising to the agency because you get to work on a lot of different 
companies and brands and products. You just wait. You just wait. And I said, okay, Jan. So I left. And I have to say, I often, I would look back at that, think back on that comment. I never got bored. Never. And it might have been, it wasn't just about shoes. It was about um, women's sports. It was about an individual athlete. It was about a new way of training. You know, it was always something different, even though it was, you know, it's like Pat said, there's just so much you have to talk about in sports. It never, it never got boring. So I don't know that I necessarily had, like in my mind, I was just happy doing, working on some great work. You know, it wasn't, well, hold on, you know, is this company going to be successful? I never looked at it that way. I just looked at the work that I was able to do. Um, and because this was old time, you know, if you, if you were part of a you know piece of communications that really touched a consumer, they'd call the 1-800 line and let you know. And so we get those printouts of all these comments um, that just sort of reinforced, you know, what we were doing was, was on the right track in addition to, you know, seeing sales growth. But you know, like Pat said about um, the, if you let me play, I remember we were at a, we were at an offsite somewhere. Liz was the marketing director at the time. And she was like, Hey, I feel like the brand hasn't really been provocative for a while. What could we, what could we do? That's kind of provocative. Um, and so, you know, people started throwing ideas. Well, we could do, I can't even remember what the different things were. And because I was the woman's person, I said, well, women's sports, it'd be great to say something about women's sports. We've not, you were just starting to hear a little bit around, you know, more female athletes, more young girls because of Title IX, having played sports all through school and growing up. Um, and so as a team, we all said, okay, yeah, let's, let's, let's do something around women's sports. And Vicki Reed was the ad manager. I was, I was uh, working with me on women's and she wrote this really great brief. We briefed Widening Kennedy and they came back to us with, I don't know how many rounds of work that was okay, but not great. And a lot of them had, um, I think one was with Ellen DeGeneres having a baby. I remember that. And it was a baby girl and she was talking to the baby girl and we kept on saying, no, this needs to come from Nike. This needs to be Nike saying sports is important for girls. As simple as that. Sports is important for girls. And I remember Vicky came into my office. She goes, hey, I found this website. Um, it's the Women's Sports Foundation. And they have these amazing facts on um, what sports does for girls. And so she goes, I'm going to give all these facts to White and Kennedy. And we'll rebrief. So we rebrief them. And they came back with... The if you let me play commercial. And I remember they presented it and we were like, yes, that's exactly what we want to say. Absolutely. So got ready to, to produce it. And this was in the fall of 95 and we had just signed, who was the football player we had signed? Jeez, I don't know. Signed so many. <clears throat> I'm trying to remember, but did a really big campaign around the football player and it's football season, right? Fall. So um, I think, we had a hundred, this will mean nothing to you guys, 150 target rating points against If You May Let Me Play. The football campaign had five or 800 points. We had 150. The commercial ran and the phones rang off the hook. It was incredible. Incredible. I mean, 
people calling from, you know, mothers, fathers, educators, kids. Yeah, it was really amazing the impact that that commercial had at the time. And then frankly continues to have, you could probably to this day, you'll find somebody has found it and posted it. But I remember not that everybody that we're all competitive, but you know, we are, it was, of course, Vicki and I were like, yay, our little commercial <laughs> with 150 rating points blew the football one. It'll come to me later. I might have to email you um, just out of the water because the message was just so right. And, and so timely, you know, and you didn't use athletes, you used real girls. Yeah. yeah. And so that's where it, so it wasn't so much, you know, to your question, John, it wasn't so much an aha moment as it was so fulfilling to work on stuff like that, that you, you saw had such impact on people. Maybe this is a good segue, Nancy, because it, it seems like there's this thread in some of the roles that you had within the company, because eventually, like you said, you were able to become a part of the women's training category. Later on, you were able to lead young athletes, which was a new category at the time. So the leadership of the company really entrusted you with some of these really important initiatives, um, an opportunity to, to really grow them and to really give them the platforms that they deserve for, for, for women and for children. Um, can you kind of speak to your role in, in, in how that really came about? Because I can remember when women's training first started out, it, you know, it was probably, you know, very small and modest and it, and, you know, obviously has grown, um, quite a bit and has, you know, you know, obviously, um, been given its due sort of support from within the company in terms of resourcing and, and, and getting that kind of exposure. Can you kind of speak to your roles along the way that kind of led um, the those categories to where they're at today? Yeah, I, you know, I'm going to say before I get to women's training, I'll just, I just want to say a couple things just about women in general. Um, it's been a long road at Nike to um, really focus and support women's in general, whether it's female athletes, women's product, um, and then ultimately then young athletes products as well. But it's, it's really, it's so great to see the company where it is now and, and how supportive they are of, of the category and frankly of the consumer, which is really nice. But um, I'm going to go back to tell a story. I was in advertising and I'm trying to remember who came to me. I was working on women's and they said, Hey, um, there's this athlete we're thinking of signing. Um, her name is Mia Hamm. And um, she's going to be on campus next week for a visit. Do you think you guys could use her in advertising? And I was like, um, yeah, maybe. And then I remembered, I said, oh yeah, I read about her. She was in Us Magazine and she was a senior at UNC um, and they had done a little story about her. Um, so I said, sure, you know, I, I'll definitely, you know, be in the meeting. So fast forward to the next week and um, we're going to meet her for lunch. Um, what is that called? What's the small? Joan Benoit. Yeah, Joan Benoit Center. But, well, no, but what is the cafeteria, the little one? The, it was the only dining room at the time. Oh, the Boston Deli? Yeah. The, no, yeah. no, not the Boston oh. Deli. There was a cafeteria. <laughs> you want to talk about like the dining room behind the Boston Deli. 
Oh my God. Anyway, so we go there. Oh yeah, I know. Yeah. Bowdens? Whatever. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, so. <laughs> That's it. That's it. Yeah. Okay. So we're sitting around waiting, and all of a sudden, this young girl comes into comes into the dining room, and she's by herself. There's no agent. There's no entourage. It's just Mia Hamm. And Joe Ellsmore was her sports marketing person who knew her. So they come in and sit down, and she's just this really quiet, sort of unassuming young woman. Um, we talked to her about, you know, her experience and what it was like to play soccer growing up and all of that. And so after she leaves, um, then we all get together and they go, well, do you think you could use her? We're like, yeah, probably. I think, yeah, we could probably use her in advertising. Yeah. She seems really nice. So they end up signing her. So that probably was maybe 93 or something, 93 or 94. And it's right about that time we start focusing on, um, elevating, female athletes and focusing on young, young girls who are playing sports. Right. But fast forward then to 1999 world cup and I'm in LA at the Rose bowl and it is packed with people spilling out. It seemed like they were spilling out and just like they're holding signs. We did a commercial called, um, I will have two fillings, people holding signs. I will have two fillings. Audi was the was the sponsor, but we snuck some Nike Nike uh, posters in, and then the ushers would come and take them away and pull the people out of the seats. It was very fun. But as we're sitting there, I think I'm maybe in the third row, and all of a sudden the team comes out, and there's Mia and Brandy and Brianna, and you see them, and the stadium goes wild, like ninety thousand people. And I couldn't help but go back to this young girl, like four years before, how many years before? Yeah. And then you see this, all of this boys and girls and mothers and fathers and all just so supportive of this team. It was just such an amazing moment to see that and screaming like, Mia, Mia, you know, and then they go on to win. And Brandy does her, you know, pulls her shirt off and we had just launched the bra and she's got the bra on. Again, not planned, completely unplanned, but, you know, everything so perfectly choreographed um, by nobody, you know, just, just by the athletes. It was, it was just amazing. So seeing that, and you just see, there were just like these moments, you know, of time where you're starting to see women sort of bubble up and then women's bubble up. And then I go over to women's training and great team, you know, um, Heidi, Heidi O'Neill was our GM and, you know, we just had a really, really great team, good product, all of that. And then the toning shoe came out. Sorry about that. So the toning shoe came out and everybody was all over. Oh, the toning shoe. All I have to do is just put the shoe on and I completely, you know, get in shape. I just walk around. I don't have to work out. I'm just completely in shape. And retailers are, you know, reaching out saying we need Nike to do a toning shoe. Um, and Heidi, thank God. And the rest of the team was like, bullshit. No, you don't just get fit walking around. You need to work at it. You need to work out. And so it was about that time we launched Nike training club as well. So if you want to get fit, you need a good product. You need the right product and you need the right app to help you do that. And so that I think was just such a turning point, And we stayed with what Nike knew. We're not going to 
just do what everybody else is doing and just follow. We're going to stick to who we are um, and know that, you know, we will inspire our consumers as much as possible to, to love sport as much as we do. And we will make sure they have the right product to do it. And so that I felt like was, that was sort of the, the lighting, the ignition that really helped the women's category take over. Then PLB came in, you know, Carrie Hoyt Pack came in um, and just kept on building on all of that to where, you know, Nike women's is, is kicking ass from what I can see. And, and this isn't a Nike thing, but it carries over in women's sports. We, two summers ago, went over to France to watch some of the Women's World Cup action. And I've been to a lot of sporting events over the years. We went to the, uh, would have been semifinal, quarterfinal, semifinal, between France and the U.S. in Paris. That stadium was packed, 45,000 yeah. people, most of them obviously from France. The appreciation for what the women were doing on the field was yeah. amazing. The energy, it was electric in that place. And the U.S. won, of course. We just happened to be just a few feet away from Megan Rapinoe when she scored on uh, the corner kick. And I shot it on my iPhone. It was fantastic. Um, but after, I mean, it was a scene. It was the scene in Paris. It was the place to be in, in Paris that night. And afterwards, the French fans, they didn't want to leave after the match had already been decided. They just hung around and hung around and showed such appreciation for not only the French team, but the American women's team, too. So it really drove home with me. Wow, women's sports has you know, come so far and it really is a, it's a thing. I mean, it's, you know, and I've seen I'm old enough to see when women's sports you know, when women had to pose as men to run in the Boston Marathon. And now it's it's a huge deal. So it's been really fun. Now that was amazing to see because you also, you know, if you go back to 99 and then you fast forward to what was that? 2019. 19. 2019. Yeah. France, yeah. The level of play was just amazing. Like every single match, really, really good. Whereas before the U.S., China, you know, there were a couple teams that would have dominated. Um, but it, you just saw great, great play. Yeah, it's a, it's a global really, thing. And, and the fans, again, all kinds of fans, like full stadiums yeah. every time. It was really nice. Yay. Sorry, we're, we're not. <laughs> I know. We're, we're not following much. your thing. We're talking too much. Oh, you guys, it's great. Thank you. I have to ask, how did you guys meet? <laughs> mm. Yeah, a... I was waiting to get to that. Um, well, we've been there. Again, as I said earlier, we got hired within a couple of weeks of each other, but um, we might have been in meetings together and didn't even know. Yeah, it. I, I mean, I knew um, who you were. Yeah, yeah. and and uh, from filming video. Yeah, five or six years into it, um, there there was this series that was set up. I think it was by might have been by Chris Avini. Um, or anyway, it was the whoever was running parts of brand design, the brand design executives at the time of which Chris was one from an operation standpoint. And every Friday afternoon, they would set up a guest speaker where everybody in brand design would go to a conference room and listen to someone who was working in another part of the company. By this time, again, this is mid nineties. So the company had gotten a lot bigger. So it was a way to get familiar with what 
product is doing or what advertising is doing or what et cetera is doing. So you had better insight as to what was going on with the company. So one of these Friday afternoons, Nancy was the speaker. And I thought, oh, this one is really interesting. Um, so I came up with the most lame line of all time. And I approached her and I said, hey, would you like to get together and have a drink so we can talk about how two departments could work more closely together? And <laughs> she, she bit on that, believe it or not. And uh, here we are, 20 some old years later. And I have to say, from my point of view, I'm not, I'm terrible about stuff like that. Bad I, was radar, never, bad radar. I was never a good dater. Um, I didn't pick up on things like that. So I'm thinking, oh, okay, yeah, that's right. Advertising and film and video. Film and video, yeah. yeah need to work together we could definitely work together a little bit more so when (laughs) when we went on that first to have the drink i really thought we were going to be talking about how we're going to work together and i remember i got home that night i thought well we didn't really talk that much about how we're going to work together (laughs) and then he emailed again he goes hey you know since we didn't really get to talking about how we work together i was wondering if you might want to get together again for a drink on Tuesday or something like that. And I was like, oh, okay, sure. You know, completely like, oh, yeah, that sounds great. And then same thing, not a lot of talk on how we're working together. And then it was, hey, are you free on Thursday? We could, you know, continue the conversation. And I'm kind of like, it's that, huh, I wonder, is, that, is it the work thing? Well, yeah, I'm sure it's work. Okay, good. So again, not a lot. It was maybe after the, fifth consecutive night of getting together i finally realized oh okay yeah he seems like a really nice guy that pat from film and video <laughs> i finally caught on it took me a while and then the people in the advertising used to just tease me all the time um because i know there were times where i go well i was talking to pat in film and video and they go oh pat in film and video? Yeah. Oh, what's he? Who's he again? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. That was my name for the advertising part for a long time. It wasn't just Pat. It was Pat and film and video. Yeah, Pat yeah. and film and video for a long time. Because, so I have to tell you a funny story about this. So we lived in a house um, just above Forest, Heights. Forest Heights yeah. on Thompson. And this one day, I'm inside and Pat's outside. It was like a three-story, you know, where it was a steep kind of falls off the yeah. hill. Yeah. Anyway, so he's at, on the top in the driveway and he's sweeping up or breaking leaves or something like that. And the bike we're right on the bike route. And so a group of a lot cyclists, of Nike people ride their bikes up in that yeah. on Thompson Road. Yeah. So Steve um Yeah, Steve, Steve. Who's Steve. the um, San Francisco? Um, oh yeah, right, Steve Young. Right, Steve Young. Yeah. So Steve Young, not not, not the Steve, Steve Young, but Steve Young from Nike. Nike. Yeah, is riding his bike by, and he sees Pat, and he stops. He goes, "Hey, Pat, how you doing?" He's and Pat's like, "Oh, great, hey, I'm oh, great." Hi. And he goes, "Do you live here?" And Pat goes, "Yeah, I live here." And he goes, "Do you know Nancy Montserrat used to live here?" <laughs> <laughs> she still does. She's a. <laughs> Anyway, so people had no idea except the ad people who knew Pat in film and video. We were, you know, coordinating on some things, collaborating on things. And then fast forward to literally two weeks ago. Do you guys know Hans George? 
Uh-huh. So Hans Jorn, you know, been at Nike a long time. He retired maybe about a year ago. Yeah, he was in apparel. So he just joined Oregon Sport Angels, which is one of the things I'm doing right now. And um, we were talking because he was asking, we had a phone call. So he was asking about it, just get more information about what we do and all of that. And um, I said something about Pat. And I said, well, you saw Pat on the call the other day, right? And he said, oh, yeah. I go, you know Pat Helberg, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I said something more about Pat. And then I said, you know that I'm married to Pat Helberg, right? And he's like, oh, no, I had no idea. (laughs) So still, to this day, we're on the call, not like this. He's upstairs on his on his uh, Zoom, I'm downstairs, but we're on the same Zoom call, but because we're not together, he had no idea either. So still, it's a big secret. After 22 years. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I'm glad your departments work together so well. Yeah. Thank you for that story. Exactly. Um, well, we've we've gone through a lot of Nike history, getting to Nike. Um, I mean, I think that it would be great for us to then just kind of transition to hear what you guys are up to now. Um, you know, a large focal point that we want to have around the podcast is, you know, life outside the berm, life, life after the berm. Um, so, Pat, maybe we'll start with you. And can we talk about, you know, your transition from Nike and what that's been like for you and what you've been working on and what gets, what gets you excited now post-Nike? Yeah, yeah. Well, I left the company. This is... This is shocking to me, JC. It'll be 13 years ago uh, in May. Um, wow. I know, I know it's crazy. And at that time, my strategy was we had created a, a digital signage network, as you'll recall, at Nike Towns. And we were creating content in the Nike film and video department on the footwear, on the apparel, on the athletes. And that content videos would play in store to try to entertain the consumer and of course market the product. And we'd done that for a few years at Nike. And I thought, this industry might be going somewhere. And um, I thought it might be a good time to leave Nike and see what I could do on my own while I still had energy. Um, And while this, this industry digital signage might take off. So I left 13 years ago and did that for a while. And, you know, had some successes. Um, then continued to be on the content creation side, worked with a great one, Marshall Becks, who was a great Nike Freeman mm-hmm. for forever. And uh, we created, again, internal, you know, industrial videos, as the term goes, um, for Gatorade slash Pepsi. And that was a great five or six year gig. There were so many similarities between Nike and Gatorade, uh, sports and fitness, athletes um, trying to improve performance. So that was like, you know, falling off a walk. That was really easy. And then a few years ago, I kind of got tired of being the oldest guy in every meeting. So I said, you know what? If I don't produce another video for the rest of my life, I'll be fine. What else can I do? Uh, I'd always been interested in wine. And when I was at Nike, uh, I created recommended wine recommendation lists that were distributed god like on word documents or powerpoint or something like that to nike employees so i'd recommend good wine buys that you could find in stores around the nike campus so i'd go to the walker road fred meyer in the costco 
and the QFC on Barnes and the Safeway on Murray. And I'd see what was on the shelf and I'd come up with these lists of here's a good $12 Chardonnay. Here's a good $18 Cabernet. Did that at Nike and had some fun with it. People kind of liked it. Then I thought, okay, if I'm done doing video, what else can I do? Well, maybe I'll revive that list and do it on a broader basis. So I created Pat the Wine Guy. So that's what I'm doing now. I'm Pat the Wine Guy. I don't sell any wine. I just make recommendations on good wine that you can find at your store or online. So I, every week, put out a newsletter. Every week, come up with a new recommended wine at thewineguy.com. Um, and just have a lot of fun with wine. It's, speaking of good subject matter, it's endless subject matter. The, the wine, the wine world, the making of wine, the enjoyment of wine, there's just so much to it. Uh, so that's what I'm doing now. I'm Pat the Wine Guy and um, having a ball just creating content on the wine side and you know observing the wine world and drinking a little bit of wine here and there. I've noticed that there is an investment within the wine industry, within the NBA players, such as Channing Frye, CJ McCollum, and Carmelo Anthony. The only difference between them and us, they got a lot more money. So that, that's why. <laughs> sure. If I, if I had a $20 million a year contract, I'd create a wine label too. Um, but no, it's, it's, it is, no, there's more and more of that. And what did you say today, dear, that Megan Markle? Oh, yeah, I saw an alert come through. Maybe it was for the Daily Mail saying that maybe the next thing that Harry and Megan, or they may be the next celebrity wine people. So maybe they're thinking wow. of wine as well. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a, it's a fun <laughs> world. It's a fun world to be in. And uh, again, it's there's never an end to the places you could go with telling stories about wine. Well, Pat, I've, I've seen some of the work that you've done just with like the local stations and you look like you're having a blast and you're killing it. So I always like seeing you in those situations. I feel like, you know, it's it's kind of nice just to to just be surprised by your appearances on KTU or something here once in a while. So well done. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thanks, Jesse. So COVID and his wine gig has been hard on me because he doesn't have the typical tasters that he used to have when he would go into the studio every day. Yeah. So instead, mm -hmm. I have to be the taster. That's a lot of wine. She's a good one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I can't wait until he can reach out to other people to do his wine tasting so it's not just me. Yeah, I am kind of a broken record. It seems like every night, well, just try this one. All you yeah, have to do, just try just this try one. It. Just let me know, just try this one. And what he does is he spits. Yeah. But I still like in my head, it's like, you can't spit it out. I mean, that's like, how much money can you just spit out if you're spitting the water? And he's like, no, that's how you enjoy it. Like, how can you enjoy it just spitting? Anyway. By, so, the, by the way, the, the speaking of that, uh, the number of empties that we put out on the street every time when the, the, the recycling people come by, it's really embarrassing. So we have the bin of shame that is just yeah. overflowing with empty glass wine bottles. <laughs> Yeah, it, is, it is a little embarrassing. Yeah. Okay. She's, she's okay. the one who's actually so, doing stuff. So me, uh, no, me, I can't believe this summer it will be five years since I retired from Nike, wow. which is crazy. Wow. So I uh, 
retired, yeah, in July of 2016. Um, and at the time, I'd, I'd seen, I'd read, you know, some article from someone who had, you know, left one job and wasn't sure what she was going to do next. And she said her advice was, the best advice she was given is just take a year off and decide, just explore a bunch of things and then make a decision on what you want to do. So I knew, I mean, I had no interest of, of trying to find another job within the industry, but I thought, oh, maybe it'd be fun to do some consulting or something like that, but I'll wait for a year and see. But then of course, somebody reached out and said, Hey, you know, this local wine, coincidentally wine group called union wine, um, they need some help. Um, they're starting to, um, get a lot of attention and they need some help. Um, it's under Underwood. You've seen their cans everywhere. Yeah. They're right. I, oh yeah, of course, because Kina talked about it. Yeah. She didn't say yeah. that I was the one who then recommended that she, um, that they interview her. Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. But so, um, I said, sure, I can, you know, help consult for a while and then help you find somebody to take over this position the marketing director position. They had somebody who had been sort of doing the role, but then had left. So that was a lot of fun, just learning about the wine industry. And then in particular them, because they were just ahead of everybody with canned wines. And everybody was, you know, you could just tell people were going to start following them, but they were just getting a lot of attention. So I consulted with them for, I don't know, six to eight months. You probably could have worked for them if you wanted to. And then my... The, the last deliverable was to find, to help them hire a marketing director. And it was Kina. So it worked out really well. And then another, another Nike person, Joan Olbrantz. I'm not sure if either of you knew Joan, but she, I think the last role she had there was in digital, but long ago. So, and so she, she was hired there. She's still there as well. So I did that. And then about the same time when I, when I left Nike, um, some people had reached out to ask if I would join the board of a um, local nonprofit called Camions of Care. And so I met with them and Camions of Care was a nonprofit that was started by two young high school students um, out of Catlin Gable. Um, one young woman in particular sort of led the charge and it was um, essentially to get menstrual products to people who couldn't afford them. And she came to this realization that there was this real need was when she was taking the bus from the east side to the west side to Catlin Gable and she changed buses in Old Town. Um, And she ended up talking with a lot of um, homeless women on the street. And when she talked with them, she said, what's the hardest thing about living on the street? And they said, getting menstrual hygiene, getting products when I'm on my period because the shelters weren't providing it because nobody would ask for it because you don't, you can't talk about periods. You know, that's something you just don't talk about. So she decided she was going to do something about it. So this young woman, Nadia Okamoto, um, started this, um, this nonprofit, Camions of Care. And so they asked me to join. And about that same time, they were realizing we need some new branding, which was perfect because I had just left Nike and, you know, it was perfect to then have a project to work on. So that's where, you know, I called in favors from friends to, you know, worked with an agency out of Boston um, and they, we briefed them and they came back to us with period. How about it? We just call it period. So they came back with the name and the branding. And then Liz Valentine, who also used to work at Nike, who is at Swift. I reached out to her 
and they did our website and everything pro bono. Um, so it was just so much fun. And then it just took off. So um, I'm still connected with them. So I'm now chairman of the board of, of that organization and they're still going strong. They have, they're probably 500 plus chapters around the world of um, in high school and college and even outside of college now, just um, local communities. So they're doing really well. Um, if I could interject, it's pretty interesting to watch this from the outside in because it's these high school kids, yeah. um, boys and girls, and college kids who have really rallied around this cause. Yeah. And it's a global deal. It's all over the world and because this is a universal problem. And they've really done an, an amazing job of rallying around this uh, and, and doing such good work to try to fix this problem. Well, they're just bringing things to people that you didn't know. Like I didn't know that... Um, period products are taxed in over 25 states in the U.S., probably it might be 30 states, put a tax, and not just a regular tax, but a luxury tax yeah. <laughs> in California. Oh, my God. They're taxed as luxury items, whereas things like Viagra, yeah, Viagra is not taxed, is not yeah. taxed yeah. at all. You know, So it, it's stuff like that that you just see these, these inequities. It's like, what? How... Mm -hmm. How could we have let that happen? So the fact that it's these, you know, these young um, activists saying, no, that's bullshit. We're not going to let this happen. And so they are, you know, lobbying governments and trying to slowly get these, get um, legislation, get Laws legislation change. change. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So there have been a lot that have been overturned. New York, New York state, there are a lot of states, California, they're still working on, obviously a lot of states are still working on, but it's amazing so being uh, being able to work with um, with youth and see what they're doing is just so energizing. So that's been fantastic. And then maybe about a year after I left, I don't know if this was like 2017 or so, I ran into Kate Del Hagen, and um, former, you guys know Kate former, former Nike. as well, mm -hmm. yeah, former Nike person. And we happened like just by happenstance, I was in Ben dropping a friend off at Hydro Flask. Was, she was going to interview somebody there and then this car drives by and then <clears throat> backs up and it's Kate. She's like, what are you doing? I said, I'm here for the weekend. What are you doing right now? Let's go have coffee. Like, okay. <laughs> so we go have some coffee and, you know, we get updated on each other and then she says, okay, here's the deal. I've been doing some angel investing on the side. Um, learning about angel investing in particular focusing on um, startups that are led by by women and she said so that's been really great she said but then like i look at what ellen schmidt devlin is doing at the university of oregon with the sports management program and she said there are going to be a lot of kids that are graduating and they may go to nike or under armor or audi but they may also have a really kick-ass idea and i started thinking I'd love to pull a group of people together to, to help fund some of those ideas if they're fundable. So would you be in? Like, uh, okay, I don't know the first thing <laughs> about investing, angel investing, but I love the idea of paying it forward and giving back. So yeah, count me in. So she did that and pulled a bunch of, bunch of us together. And we launched, I think, at the end of 2017, Oregon Sport Angels. Um, we're not big, you know, we have, I think there are 32 of us, Pat joined this year. Um, there are 32 of us, um, but it's been 
so fulfilling, you know, seeing these great ideas and startup ideas from, you know, from tech, you know, sports tech to product. Um, it's, it's been really, really invigorating. And so, it's not exclusively Nike, but there are a lot of ex-Nike people in there. Names you will recognize. Steve Nichols, Ralph Green, uh, again, Kate, yeah. uh, Pierre Laurent Baudet. Um, who else from Nike? Kate Armstrong just joined us. Yeah, Liz Valentine just yeah, joined. Yeah, Liz Valentine. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's been it's been great. So, so it's uh, a little real... bit like Shark Tank on a local basis. That's yeah. kind of what it is. Yeah. And it's 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 fun. There are a lot of good ideas out there. So you're trying to sift through it and figure out how could we help this this group and, and do they do they really have a unique product or unique point of view on yeah. that? So yeah, it's a blast. Yeah, it's been really fun. And then the last thing that I'm working on, um, back to Liz Dolan. You know, we mentioned Liz. So she she called me a couple actually she might have started off talking with you. Yeah, she did. Yeah. Um, how do I say this? <laughs> Uh, it's pretty, you summarize it. It's yeah. So promote the world championships and save track and field. <laughs> yeah. And maybe not save track. And field, but how do you, how do you, you know, ensure or elevate track and field and the athletes to the status that they once had? So it's a really easy proposition. It's really hard. <laughs> no. And this is a pet project. Can we, we've said his name already. Phil Knight is behind this because Phil, wants to see track and field flourish again. So the charge is to yeah, promote the world championships. And of course those were canceled because of COVID, but they'll be back next year. They'll be back. Yeah. yeah. In Oregon, it'll be Oregon 22. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's been a really, a really fun project to work on, but it's been, as you can imagine in a COVID year, you know, it's been up and down and up and down. Um, it also, you know, coincides with the completion of Hayward field um, in Eugene. And so it was all ready, you know, for, for its glory in July of last year. And then, you know, there were no, all competitions were canceled. And so fast forward to this past weekend, they had their first competition at Hayward Field with, um, this was a University of Oregon competition with a college competition. And then there'll be another one next weekend and then there'll be Oregon Relay. So there's a, a nice um, lineup of, of events that are happening at, at Hayward Field that will culminate this summer with the Prefontaine Classic in August. It's typically in June, but um, we're really lucky. We're gonna be able to have it in August this year. So after we have the trials in June and then the Olympics in July, then many of the athletes will come back or come home, we like to say, to Hayward Field to compete here um, in, at, for the first time. So. Yeah. Yeah. So and that's been a super fun project to work on as well. I'm on the outside of that one, but I've experienced the, uh, through Nancy and the group of the building of Hayward Field. And again, my first TV job was at KVAL TV in Eugene. And I would use to shoot video of former Nike people such as Rudy Chapa, Alberto Salazar, Ellen Smith Devlin on the old Hayward Field that, you know, you look like it could fall down any minute if somebody blew on it. And now to see the new Hayward field, I mean, it's extraordinary. Because I've, I've been able to, I've had one tour. Uh, we were able to go 
they gave us a, a great tour of it, but it, it's just stunning. Like you sit there, you and, know, uh, and, in the in the stands and look around. It's it's just stunning. And it the really lead is. on the project, another Nike former person, Todd Van Horn. Yeah, Todd Van Horn yeah. has just done a tremendous job. It's really amazing. But Gallagher did um, Hayward Hall with all the history, and Moda Just did a lot of the videos. So so many people that you guys know, you know, have have had their hands in making it just at this stunning, stunning um, stadium. Yeah. Yeah. It's really beautiful. So that's been, that's been a lot of fun. I want to say, obviously I owe my career at Nike to you, Pat. Um, so thank you again for taking a chance on a guy who at the time was working at a sausage kitchen before I came on board <laughs> at Nike. That. Yeah. So that was a real gamble yeah, for South you. Hawthorne, was that where it was? uh woodstock even woodstock. further out yeah oh, okay. auto auto sausage kitchen oh, yeah. so yeah. yeah and uh it, you know 19 almost 20 years at the company so um thank you again and thank you nancy um you know we've had so many people on who have mentioned you and your um your mentorship um and your leadership and you know i got the opportunity to be in meetings with you and watch you lead conversations with people from around the business. And um, it was just really great to have that experience of working with you both uh, so closely at Nike. Um, that it's just, it's really was important for me to have you guys on. And I really appreciate your time and in, in being on with us. Hey, Jesse, I have to say thank you to you for always taking my calls and returning my emails. You did. I mean, I would ask you, like, can you find uh, this piece of video from, uh, and you would always do it. So thank you so much. Seriously. You're great. Plus, didn't you take care of, didn't you watch our house once? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. We owe you a lot. Yeah. Yes. We no, I, kill, I think I killed the roses or something. It was really, oh. it was a really bad they experience. Needed, clearly they needed to go. So thank you very much. So I want to say one more thing. We're done, if you don't mind. And I'm sorry, uh, old stories. But Jesse, you remember David Perimbo, correct? Yes. Okay. I'm not sure if you guys were there at the same time in film and video. Mm -hmm. Okay. He was before me. I was on the phone with David a couple, three weeks ago. I hadn't talked to him in 10 plus years. David was a uh, brilliant producer slash director in film and video. And he went on to, he's created some amazing films since Nike. Um, but we started talking about the old Nike film and video days. And it just dawned on me, there was, it was such a great crew. And we both said we worked, that was the most fun we ever had was when we were surrounded by all those great people. And of course, Michael Doherty would hold court and it was a circus every single day. So how could you not have fun? But it was, again, I know a little off track here, but it just brought up these memories with David and me. Um, about the amazing people we were surrounded with during those heydays, uh, the heyday of Nike film and video. And it was just, it was just too much fun. And those people were just too great. You know, you go down the roster and it was just, it was an all-star team and they were all great people. Yeah. And it was very much a, a family, you know, and uh, we were all really super tight and um, we all still keep in touch. Um, we were thinking about getting everybody together. So we'll keep you guys in the loop whenever we do get that happening uh, so we can all see each other and, and uh, reminisce. So thanks again, you guys really appreciate the time. 
Um, it was great to hear your stories and um, looking forward to the work that you're doing and seeing more of it um, in the months ahead. So thank you so much. Okay, thanks, thanks guys. Thanks you both. Appreciate okay. it. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye, -bye. Bye.